talking about The Wire, and uh, for a podcast about films, why on earth are we talking about The Wire, Ed? Uh, because it's a, uh, a transcendental work. Also, we've talked about television in the past. Uh, we did an episode entirely about television, but uh, I think that uh, in terms of American pop culture, there's The, the Wire alongside something like, you know, The Sopranos, um, Deadwood, most of the stuff that's been on HBO, mm. uh, kind of stands up as... A, a a one of the great sort of pinnacles of American popular culture of the last decade or so, uh, and you know I think uh, it's worth discussing. Uh, yeah, I I uh, remembered a quote that I heard that I can't attribute to anyone, so I'll just kind of say it and maybe bastardise it a little bit. That um, this quote said that The Wire is the best work of narrative fiction to come out of America for. X amount of years. Mm. Uh, I can't remember what he said years-wise, but um, definitely 21st century. Yeah. Um, but that, like you say, backs up the idea that it, it transcends the medium of which it is presented, which is episodic television. Um, it it irre- irrevocably changed that medium as well. Um, and we, we generally tend to talk about things um, that in a kind of pre- and post-wire context um why is it so important uh i think in terms of the sort of the going back to the pre and post thing uh it altered the way in which uh a show could relate its story because uh as you say it's an episodic television show but it doesn't treat each episode as a self-contained episode it treats them and this is a a uh, metaphor that uh, David Simon, the creator of the show, has, has used quite often. Uh, it's more like a novel. Each chapter introduces some aspect of the story and then slowly builds to a conclusion. I think the, the quote he made was, um, in Moby Dick, you don't meet the, chap- the, the whale in chapter one. Mm. Uh, he goes and gets some chowder, you know. Um, it's quite an apt comparison, considering what Moby Dick's really about. Drugs. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, oh, he's a white whale. Mm. Ah, cocaine's white. Ah. <laughs> um, no, uh, about yeah, a dissection of America. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe Moby Dick's whale. Well. I don't know. I haven't read it. Look shit. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you're right. It, it, it's an episodic television show that is on once a week. I can't conceive watching that once a week, one episode a week. That I would totally lose it. What if you missed an episode? Mm. And I think that's The Wire was one of the very first TV shows to um, really make it as a as a box set. Yeah. In um, a and it, it it alters the way that people consume television. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, there's this, uh, some shows around at the same time. Something like uh, Arrested Development also did that. That was kind. Of, that started after after The Wire, but was kind of happening concurrent concurrently. Um, yeah. The the idea that each season is a complete body of work that's to be kind of consumed uh as more more like a long a long form film Mm -hmm. than in individual chunks i watched the the fourth and fifth seasons on a weekly basis uh when they aired on fx over here and um that was painful (laughs) that was very painful having to wait each week to kind of see what would incrementally move the plot on. <laughs> In comparison, <clears throat> I imported season four on DVD from America. It wasn't out until 
I imported it and it arrived on Christmas Eve. Um, I can't remember what the year was, maybe 2007. And um, it wasn't due out until the following year. Yeah. So my Christmas day and Boxing Day, I watched The Wire Season 4 <laughs> in two sittings. Seven episodes, then five episodes, back to back. Um, that is kind of how hungry for The Wire I was. Uh, my girlfriend at the time didn't enjoy <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> but, you know, fuck her. Um, uh, yeah, so it really did change the way that people consume television rather than waiting a week to see an episode. People would buy a box set and, uh, you know, watch it at their own pace because it is a show that needs to be um, watched and absorbed at yeah. its own pace. You could, pro- I think the best way to do it is probably a couple of, um, in six nights in a row, two episodes a night. That's how I like to roll. That's pretty. That's pretty close. Uh, I think you can also see in the way in which the critical reputation of the show of the show grew as it went along. It wasn't a show that made a huge splash when it first started. Mm-hmm. It was only. I mean, obviously, we're talking about it from a British perspective, so you know, for it, it started to really pick up when Charlie Brooker started talking about that's it. That's ex- exactly how I got into it. I think he was he's probably responsible for it through writing about it in the Guardian and obviously through uh, screen wipe uh and from that you know people went out and bought the box sets of the first I think at the time that he kind of started telling people about it I think the first two or three had had been released on DVD Yeah two two were out three hadn't come out yet so that was people started kind of watching it and then you know lending box set box set to people Ten their friends and that kind of started the cult growing so by the time like the fifth season was coming out over here it was a major uh major event when the bbc started airing it, it was also a big thing because they aired every, an episode a night a night for 60 nights yeah. yeah um that is exactly how it happened i don't want to sound like a hipster i was into it before everyone else mm-hmm. yeah you probably haven't heard of this little show called the wire um but i um had seen it and i'd seen the box set but i just assumed it was um just a cop show yeah and i saw the charlie brooker screen wipe episode where he said if you dip into it you will see it you will think it's probably just a cop show but if you you sit and uh, take it in the way it's supposed to be then you get this kind of uh, very deep sprawling epic um and i i saw his video about it then went out and bought the first box set didn't really know what to make of it until I'd seen about three or four episodes. Yeah, yeah. And then I was hooked. So they bought the second one straight after, watched that straight through, and then, uh, like I say, the third one wasn't out at that point, and then I got on to the third one, um, and then imported the fourth one. And then the fifth one, I seem to remember, I just couldn't wait. So um, that was, I think a friend had got, this is kind of slightly before the time that um, bit torrenting had taken a, a grip on um, how people watch TV now, talking about how people have changed watching TV, yeah. and I'd I'd been handed a disc, <laughs> just a blank disc in my in my place of work, slipped under the table, and I watched it, and um, yeah, it was uh, a very poor quality, and there was a a watermark on it, but wow. that's how that's how I watched season five <laughs> on a tiny computer screen. But that's just that is how much I wanted to see it, and how desperate I was to to see how it concluded it's a it's an apt metaphor for the drug trade you start off with uh you know you'll only go for the highest stuff but by the end you'll just go for the lowest possible quality to get your fix absolutely <laughs> i was uh, yeah mainlining wmd straight in there um as a show it is built um it was it's always intended to be five seasons although there was talk of a sixth season um, but they, I think they realised they were going to do it about the kind of Hispanic population when they yeah. Didn't but they really... realised that there was no one on the staff that kind they they didn't think anyone on the staff had a sort of a handle on it in the way that um, 
they had in the, the previous seasons because uh, David Simon started off as a journalist in Baltimore, so he had experience of and and Ed Burns, the who was not a co-creator but uh, very very important in sort of helping to shape the show. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a a cop in Baltimore, homicide detective, and then a teacher, and then a teacher. So obviously his experience has influenced pretty much all of the show because obviously the cop aspect is a is a big part all the way through. But through uh, Simon also living in Baltimore for all of his life, you know, he, he knew about the, the politics. He knew about working in the, the newspaper trade, which is the, the basis of the, the fifth season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that they didn't think that anyone there would be able to offer a, a particularly strong insight into the Hispanic community. So they decided that the, the fifth was the right place to, to end it. Yeah, and it, it feels, um, I mean... Um, the fifth season is definitely the weakest season out of all five. Would you yeah, agree? I would say so. Yeah, particularly in comparison, it's still it's still really good. It's still very very good. Uh, but certainly in comparison to like the uh, the fourth season, which is my favourite of mm. of the of the five. Mine too. It's a uh, it's a, it is a steep decline, and also um, it kind of feels because uh, it. All the other series are kind of inside outsiders looking in and kind of uh, writing about what they they see as the failings of those institutions. Whereas I get the feeling with the Baltimore Sun uh, plotline in the fifth season, which is where uh, it's the paper where Simon works, mm-hmm. where he was working uh, when he uh, took a sabbatical to write the book uh, Homicide a year on the killing streets, and where he eventually left in order to write for the TV show Homicide. Um, it, it, you kind of get the feeling that he perhaps it's a bit more personal there and he's kind of settling scores a little bit. Yeah, it, it did feel like he had an axe to grind, didn't it? And some of the characterization, especially the Templeton character, Scott Templeton character, feel a little uh, uh, disingenuous. Yeah. Feel a little kind of uh, not quite as true as maybe some of the other characters he's brought in. But all five seasons, each season has a kind of thematic... Uh, they have a thematic theme... <laughs> They have a thematic theme. They have a thematic theme. Um, um, what are they from season to season? The first one is kind of just sets up the two, the two kind of uh, the moral dichotomy of uh, uh, the police and and the the drug the Barksdale drug organization. Yeah. And um, the inherent problems in those organizations. But yeah. Then... Also, it, you, you point out there's a dichotomy, but also it points out the the way in which. Um, the two are essentially parallel organisations. I did say dichotomy without fully understanding that word. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> um, yeah, Isn't uh, that when they cut your throat open? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a dichotomy. Yeah. Uh, helps you, helps you smoke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, and also um, the idea of is the the kind of overwhelming thesis of of, of the show. One of them because it's a show with many. Did you the- say an overwhelming fetus? Thesis. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's a show with lots of feces. It's right. got lots of okay. um, it's got lots of, of of kind of big big points about American society that it wants to make. But one of them is the idea that the war on drugs has turned into an attack on the American underclass, and mm-hmm. then it's essentially a a futile attempt to enforce something which uh, is impossible to enforce because it's impossible to stop people from buying and making and selling drugs yeah. in the sheer numbers and that the effort to stop them then uh, causes far more harm than good. Um, most clearly underlined in the first season by uh, Carver saying that um, 
and I think this is a line that's attributed also to Ed Burns saying that uh, it's not a war on drugs because wars end. Yeah. And essentially that they, they can't possibly win in the drug war because it's just going to keep propagating over time. Um, and through that, it kind of points out the failings in in the institution of the police, uh, the, the obsession with stats mm-hmm. uh, at the expense of police work um as seen by the instances in which or at the end of the first season where they're forced to wrap up the investigation to get a few arrests whereas if they'd have carried on they would have got themselves when they follow the money like lester says um they would have um, found themselves you know balls deep in city hall and and all kinds of uh dodgy business they could have made a serious impact on you know the drug trade and and corruption but because they basically say you've got you've got Barksdale in your sights, then you need to take him down. Yeah. When they knew they knew from following that it didn't end with Barksdale, but they're forced to because they can clear out, they can clear some murders and uh, get an arrest that they can splash over the over the newspaper. Yeah, get some weapons and drugs on the table. So that's the first season. Second season uh, is a real shift. It, it moves away from the the projects of the, and the low rises and the the towers. Um, and um, this, the second season is, along with the fourth season, are the ones that are most different mm. um, because they go to uh, the docks, a very different area of of, um, of Baltimore. The because it's obviously a port town, um, but the port has decayed, um, and we pick up um, the story um, where we left it in the first season with. Uh, McNulty on the boat and uh, all the other the people from the the unit the the detail have been kind of reassigned or whatever um some of them badly Daniels mm. has been sent to the basement evidence control um but um we see um a very you know blue collar uh, working class um part of Baltimore which obviously is a Simon talking about that part of America there's also there's some very pointed references um, their target in the second investigation is Frank Sabotka, um, the head of the Steve Doors Union. And if the wire did nothing, uh, it taught me what a Steve Door is, <laughs> um, and then what a Teamster is, and yeah. Yeah, why they've all got silly names. Uh, um, but it was uh, that this investigation is started by a grudge between um, the Major Valchek, uh, a Polish uh, senior police person, um, and his beef with. Um, Sabotka, which you think is all about a church window. Yeah. It starts, you know, he thinks they've got too much cash, so he kind of sets up an investigation to try and settle a score. But um, this season of The Wire is, it makes it the most explicit references to um, kind of the fact that we're living in post industrial America in mm. terms of uh, there's even a line towards the end of the season where Frank says, This country's problem is we don't make shit anymore. Yeah. We don't, there is no manufacture. Um, and basically, it, it focuses on a on a part, of, like much like the first series does, of a part of Baltimore slash America. <laughs> Anyone who hasn't picked up the um, the wire is a metaphor for America. Um, probably isn't watching it close enough. <laughs> um, but that that part of that city is dying, and its people are dying slowly. Yeah. And it's a, a very depressing, sobering and, and look that, at that. And that is what leads them to have to seek you know deals with like the greek who is the uh who is the the main i don't suppose he's the main antagonist of the season most seasons don't really have antagonists but no. he's certainly the the shady 
presence that's uh, that the stevedores make uh, sort of a Faustian pact with, which is to get money in exchange for losing containers which uh, uh, contain. Um, <laughs> Contain, yes, they do. <laughs> contain, uh, you know, uh, women who are brought over for for the sex trade, uh, drugs, and drugs, contraband. All yeah, all sorts of horrible things, which of course leads to uh, one container being just full of uh, dead women because mm. they've been suffocated, which is where the main investigation. That's what allows for the reformation of the major crimes unit as a permanent sort of entity. As a result, I think the second season. Um, I mean, it's quite risky the way that it, 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 I mean, the wire does this anyway. It's quite risky the way that it keeps the characters that you've already been introduced to mm. and then just picks up more along the way. It's kind yeah. of like a snowball that just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, characters will come, they'll still, they'll always be there. Mm. I mean, like characters like Poot and things like that are always in the background every season. They're there. We're not just asked to forget about these characters because we're talking about something else because you get this idea that david simon is building this picture of a city a portrait of a city in decline um and um every person well every piece matters like lester says yeah um and you know it really is um kind of testament to the people who make the show that it doesn't ever feel confusing or overwhelming just the sheer number of people in there it's not dumbed down or anything yeah. but it's it, they, they, it's all manageable isn't it yeah absolutely and i think that um one of the reasons that the second season is often cited as, as the one of the weaker of the show um but you and i have both rewatched it mm-hmm. separately we didn't just kind of like sit down and mainline the wire together yep. although that would have been more fun than mainline than the twilight, twilight line, yeah um and not that much longer mm-hmm. um yeah uh is that that it's the first one that takes that risk of taking you out of your comfort zone of the the ghetto <laughs> yep. and taking you to a new area and introducing you to new characters uh so that when you do that again in the third season you you're kind of prepared for the shock of it um but the second season I think actually holds up very very well upon once you know that there is going to be a switch yeah and once you know that you're going to see a different part of the city and be introduced to these new characters but I do think that that's one of the reasons why the second one, because the second one is the first one to just take that leap. It's the one that's perhaps more harshly judged than it needs to be. Um, season three, um, the, the Wire is not a show that gives any closure really to anything. No. But season three does give some closure, I suppose, to the elements of the Barksdale uh, case. Mm. Um, most specifically, the... Um, the death of Stringer Bell, yeah. should we say, that is a very kind of key conclusion to that part of the story. But like the snowball keeps rolling, we move on and we take in City Hall is the, is the newest area that we um, kind of get. We get all the we get Clay Davis, uh, a character who the, is the greats, who is on the fringes of seasons one and two, um, and we know that he's shady as all fuck. Mm. But in series three he comes to the fore, we have Tommy Carcetti played brilliantly by Aidan Gillen. Um, who I was very stunned to, because I, I was just saying to you beforehand that um, I just watched all of Queer as Folk before I watched season three <laughs> of The Wire. I had no idea he was going to pop up in it, and now he's kind of HBO's go-to guy because he's in Game of Thrones, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, th- we we meet City Hall. We see where you get the sense of it in series two when they talk about how important it is um, with for the Steve Dore Union to um, get decisions made in at City Hall. 
and there's a lot of lobbying, isn't there? And there, yeah. we we sense those things in the background, but then they're expanded upon greatly in series three. But series three overall um, theme is reform, isn't it? Yeah. And we try and see how, principally through the character of Cutty, the uh, who was introduced in series three from nowhere. Yeah. Um, a um a kind of uh enforcer from back in the day who comes out and tries to find his feet again in the world who has he has a great storyline mm. um and yeah he is the kind of the central driving of that but there are other characters you can see if you know who are tested in that way and examined in that way yeah uh most notably uh you know aiden gillen as, as tommy carchetti who starts off as a, a councilman uh, by the end of the season, he's begun his campaign to become mayor, mm-hmm. and his whole thing is he believes that if that the whole point is it that it's the the guy at the top, the mayor, Mayor Royce, uh, is it Royce who's the mayor? Yep. Yeah, Mayor Royce, uh, who's the um, who's the problem? He's the guy who's ingrained, and that what they need is someone new at the top who can uh, kind of introduce change and and make things better for the people. Um, which again kind of plays into that idea of, of reform. The third one also is where you get the uh, there's kind of a uh, an analogy to the war on terror, which has kind of always been part of it. Like the war on drugs and the war on terror are both kind of nebulous, non-ending mm-hmm. conflicts in yeah. which, in one case, you're against a, a, an entire section of society and a way of life that you can't stamp out, and the other one you're against a concept. Yeah. Um, but the uh, season three begins with the demolition of two towers, uh, which then leads See to what done there. which then leads to uh, the escalating conflict between the Barksdale, the re- sort of remnants of the Barksdale and, uh, organization, and uh, and Marlow Stanfield, who's yes, the we meet Marlow, don't we? Yeah, Marlow is a, a fantastic character mm. who comes in um, in season three. We also get in season three one of the the kind of uh, more far out elements of the wire um, is the whole Hamsterdam. Um, yes, which thing, is which very is, interesting. Yeah, Bunny Colvin, the um, commissioner in the, one of the districts of Baltimore, decides that he is going to um, take the idea that you can drink. Drinking on the street is illegal in America, um, but it's not if you put it in a brown bag hmm. um, because it just covers up the label. Could be anything. Could be could be Kiora. We don't know. <laughs> it's probably not. It's gin. Um, so he takes that concept and illustrates that concept in a meeting um, and designates a area of Baltimore where drug use is not punished and drug dealing is not um, an arrestable thing. So And it basically contains the problem. And as a, as a social policy, it works yeah. <laughs> because um, everyday people living their lives in streets ravaged by the drug, drug trade find themselves, you know, free to leave their house at night and, you know, neighbours get better. But at the same time, it's it's basically saying drug use is legal. And yeah. it's I'm not sure what that came out of in, in Simon's uh, head. Um, I'm not sure whether that's something that police chiefs have talked about. Or whether you know they, it sounds, it, it seems like an idea that would work, but mm. it's also fraught with so many moral dangers. Yeah. Um. Um. That it's it, it it's almost an absurd concept, but they make it work perfectly. Yeah. It's also it also plays into the idea that it kind of bleeds over into the, the into the fourth season with Carcetti, who becomes mayor in, mm. in the fourth season, um, and and also Cutty, the idea that uh. People believe that individuals can make a difference. You know, uh, obviously, uh, Bunny Colvin uses 
the resources available to him, which is the main problem, is that it's, it's, a, it's basically a massive misappropriation of his resources as a commissioner. Yeah. But he he decides he's going to implement this idea, uh, which he thinks would allow for you know some containment of of the drug problem and you know also a tacit acceptance that it's never going away which is probably the the, the two main things that uh eventually would cause anyone attempting that to, in real life to get shot down as 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 bunny colvin is because he's stripped of his rank and forced to uh take early retirement mm-hmm. to avoid to avoid a scandal um i think uh in the fourth season with carchetti becoming mayor and realizing that there's only so much you can do even if you are the most powerful man in the city mm. you're still going to be limited by people the the people around you and the institutions so the the, the kind of overarching theme that individuals can have the best intentions but ultimately they will be kind of crushed by the ins- the institutions that surround them unless those institutions are fundamentally changed in some way yeah um well i mean we'll talk about institutions at the end because uh obviously that's a, a theme that goes through all, all five seasons but yeah. four takes in a very different institution in that we enter the school system mm. it seems like the logical step um um, and we're guided there by uh, Officer Presbaluski, who at the end of season three is uh, leaves the police because he shoots another cop. Yeah. Um, um, he's one of the greatest characters, isn't he, Presbaluski? Yeah, Pres, is, it, that's one of the things that's great about it as well, is because you follow these characters over, it, it doesn't, it, it occasionally will make characters more or more important or less important over time, but because they're always there, mm-hmm. you kind of feel as if you're going on a journey. So it's, it's genuinely quite... Uh, heartening to see um prez go from being this kind of buffoonish figure in the first couple of seasons to uh genuinely finding some sort of purpose as a teacher but again becoming one of those sort of noble nobly tragic figures that the wire kind of traffics in people who really feel that they can achieve something but yeah they're surrounded by an a, a, a flawed environment system. yeah a flawed system that means that there's only so much that they can do and it, that the season four was inspired by ed burns like you said who was um a, a homicide detective um in baltimore for many years and also co-wrote many episodes um he became a school teacher um and um also noted the uh problems with those systems, uh, the school system and the education system. Um, it introduced us to um, four new principal characters, the four kind of uh, kids of the show, um, who we've reminded ourselves before the, before this podcast started recording of their names, uh, Randy, Dookie, someone My, else, Michael. and Michael, and yeah. someone else. Our, uh, uh, something. Yeah, I can't remember. He had a ponytail. Yeah. Um, but uh, those four people then will become our guides through the fourth season and also the fifth season as well. Um but I have to say season four is by far my favorite. Um, I was saying this because I've just started rewatching them uh, from the beginning. Uh, season one, I'm on season, just finished season two the other day. Um, and uh, my missus has never seen it. And um, she's completely in awe of the show and, mm-hmm. and enraptured by it. Um, and she found herself to be an emotional mess by the end of season two <laughs> with the Sabotka storyline ending. Um, and I just said you wait till season four because that show will break your fucking heart. That yeah. is that is 
that packs the biggest emotional punch of any of the seasons, doesn't it? Season yeah, four. because you see, although as you say, it bleeds over into season five as well. But you see all those four boys go on their own journeys in Namond. That's his name. Namond. Yeah. Namond. They all go on to their own. Uh, Speaking of which, my one connection to the wire is that uh, Namond at one point plays Perfect Dark Zero on his Xbox 360, a game I tested. So I get something I worked on is in the wire. You and really I, should have been credited. I, I really should have been credited. It was very vital. Mm. He's also playing the shittest level. Um, rooftops, for anyone who's wondering. Yeah, um, yeah he they uh, they each go on their own. They 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 all start off as kids. They're mm-hmm. obviously growing up in a in a fairly bleak environment. But the first episode is is the last day of summer where they're all kind of like essentially being kids. Uh, playing with a gun um yeah but you know there is there is there's a kind there's as close to innocence as you get in the baltimore slums um but as the season goes on uh they all kind of start on their own journey into you know the the various cycles of of violence and destruction that touch upon the lives of pretty much everyone in the show mm-hmm. uh michael ends up as an enforcer working for marlow mm-hmm. uh namond through great luck ends up being taken in by bunny colvin yeah. and manages to escape but uh you know he's still within like i think isn't the last shot of season four like him at the house but you can kind of still see baltimore off in the background so you know that even though he's no longer there it's you know it's still there he's never going to truly escape from everything that he's seen and experienced Mm -hmm. um randy ends up in a children's home because uh he ends up at the center of a police investigation as a witness uh the police fail to protect his uh aunt i think so yeah who ends up getting firebombed um and um what was the other one uh, Namon, no, uh, Randy Dookie. And Dookie uh, is more, it's more, his decline's more in the. In series five. In series five, where he ends up becoming. A, a skag and bone man. Yeah. Although I th- that may start in season four as well, but yeah. they, they, they all kind of are, you know, the wire, the next generation. You know, they're, they're the people who are going to end up in those. The wire babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're all going to end up fulfilling the same roles that the people who've come before them will, and then people after them, and just kind it's of cyclical. And it's a it's a cycle of despair. Yeah. Um. So yeah, tune in. It's a feel good show. Um. Season five, like we said before, moves into the newspapers, um, a area that Simon knows only too well, and takes um, probably the biggest risk of all of the Wire, um, series. I mean, I said that the Hamsterdam concept was. Um, slightly absurd that the McNulty's fake serial killer mm. um, um, plotline in season five is actually absurd. Yeah, although apparently it has some basis in base in uh, in reality. There are instances where cops have created fake crimes in order to get overtime, right? But never on the never on the scale that uh, McNulty tries to do, or for the kind of the noble the noble cause that he puts into he and he and Lester who orchestrate it all mm. which is essentially they know that if they had more men and more overtime they could you know make a, a case against the Stan, the Stansfield organization obviously at this point Marlowe has become the dominant force cuz after Stringer Bell's death at the end of the third one that they 
uh, old Barksdale organisation completely falls apart and Marlowe kind of fills the power vacuum. Um, but the city is uh, racked with debt. They can't afford to pay overtime for cops, uh, except in the case of special, in like really high profile meetings. Red Bull cases, Red they Bull call cases. them. Yeah. So they find uh, these tramps who have died from uh, you know natural causes or whatever, and then make it seem as if they have been murdered by a serial killer, so yeah. that they can eke money out to fund their own investigations into the Barksdale, into the Stansfield organisation. Again, it's the idea of of individuals trying to uh, make a difference, although in this instance it's kind of individuals exploiting the weaknesses in the system for a noble purpose. So those are the five seasons, um, and like I said, the through line through through every single one, uh, and every single episode, um, is just that uh individuals are at the mercy of the institutions to which they um reside in and Mm. all institutions are deeply flawed yeah it's also one of the key ways in which uh the the show differs from most american drama um in that regard is uh as as simon has, has said in the past it is uh it draws on greek tragedy for its structure rather than Shakespearean tragedy. The Please explain the difference for uneducated people listening to this. Well, in Greek tragedy, the uh, the actions of, of the, the main characters are not dictated by their own internal flaws. It's by the actions of the gods mm-hmm. who essentially control their lives. And in Shakespeare, it's the, the flaws of the individual, you know, their, their tragic flaw that then leads them to make the errors that end in their downfall. In the case of The Wire, the gods are essentially replaced with the various institutions uh, and the people who control those institutions, because they're the people who will ultimately decide the fate of everyone in the show. They'll decide how long the investigation goes on for. They'll decide who lives and who dies. Mm-hmm. In the case of the drug, in the case of the, the drug dealers, uh, and the uh, in terms of the organised crime uh, syndicates. Uh, and that's kind of one of the, the, the key differences and what uh, is so great about the shows is it allow it does allow for the, the characters at its centre to generally be uh, noble, even someone like Omar, mm-hmm. who is a, a sociopath and a killer, uh, because he has a, a, a moral code uh, and he's kind of like sticks to it. He never swears in any episode. Does he not? No, he, he doesn't use foul language. And I, I, I read that. <laughs> way after I'd seen all five yeah. uh, seasons and then uh, as obviously watching them again in the first season Brandon swears yeah. and Omar says there's no need to, to talk <laughs> like that and then I was like oh, oh yeah and then he doesn't swear at all once oh wow throughout that's, the whole thing I've never noticed that that's quite that's quite good there you go but he, he, peeling back the layers peeling back the layers but you know he because he you know uh robs from drug dealers and presents himself as kind of a, a Robin Hood and he doesn't actually kill that many people even though he's greatly feared mm-hmm. you know he's he's a stick up guy he yeah. robs people for the money and the drugs to sell on but he doesn't want a load of bodies kind of like hanging around his neck that the police could get him on because I don't think the, the police basically who's going to care if someone's robbing drug dealers no you're right um, and then you know obviously the, the various cops uh, are trying to do the best that they can but they are always going to be at odds with their superiors who are always at odds 
with their superiors Mm -hmm. and you know as far up the chain as you can go is that people will always be fighting against uh whatever thing above them is is uh preventing them from doing the most effective job that they can yeah the 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 phrase they use uh, all the way through it is shit rolls downhill yeah um and we see that even to a minute level um in you know even something as small as the the major crimes unit that is Mm -hmm. headed up by daniels that the people at the bottom of that are herc and carver in season two and end up getting all the shit falling on them and you know even even in, on a on a very small level you can see it as a kind of microcosm of, of the of the idea that that pervades the entire show um in terms of um the wire's influence um how has that felt now in shows on television in america i think you can definitely see it in cable dramas certainly um the cable dramas that have started in the wake of the wire um because uh the wire encouraged uh it was the wire was based on the idea of letting the audience lean in rather than sit back and and take it in uh tacitly mm-hmm. um and uh is tacitly the right word um probably <laughs> uh not uh, tactically no not tactically <laughs> um and you can see and and as such you know it was very paced it was paced in a very deliberate way, you know, it didn't have all of the major event, like, it didn't have a major event happen in every episode, it um, would have... They did say, fuck the casual viewer, didn't they? That's that was the phrase. The phrase that Simon used, that if you, if you weren't there from the beginning, then he wasn't going to make any concessions to you. Exactly. And uh, so it encouraged viewers to pay do attention. the work, pay attention... Um, and well, the 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 strap line for the first season was "Listen carefully," which I thought was apt yeah. on many levels because you you really do have to, you can't just passively have it on in the background. You have to really go for it. Even in terms of like just the way in which people talk, like the first time, it's kind of like Deadwood in a similar way because Deadwood's obviously written in a very uh, elaborate uh, Shakespearean style, way. Yeah, w- which can take a few episodes to kind of get. A rat your head around but as soon as you do suddenly it's you know it's perfectly apparent what everyone's saying what's what a hoople head is mm. um with the wire there's lots of technical language from the various different organizations and they all have their own technical language and they don't explain it yeah they don't explain it so you have to sit down and, and really kind of like key into the way in which the show functions and that obviously encourages you to to lean in and to really uh try and understand what's happening uh on pretty much them even the most minor level of language it's not even just trying to understand the institutions it's just understanding the way in which the people in those institutions talk mm-hmm. um what was the original point you were saying about this? the original point i uh, was uh, how is the influence of the wire felt on tv sure. now okay uh edit point tactically <laughs> <laughs> um and I think what you can see in certainly in HBO shows like something like Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. uh, Boardwalk Empire certainly it's its first season. I haven't seen the second, but the first season it is uh, takes its time to introduce all of its characters. Uh, Michael Kenneth Williams, who plays uh, the uh, who plays Omar in The Wire, plays Chalky White in uh, Boardwalk Empire, who's a, who's a major character. He's uh, one of the the key figures in the first season, but he is introduced. In one scene in the first episode of the first season of Boardwalk Empire, isn't seen in the second, and then only over time does he become apparent. There's a a a brewing war in the first season of Boardwalk Empire between 
Steve Buscemi as a uh, as Nucky and mm. uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, who's a, a gangs a, a gambler that he ends up at odds with. But that war doesn't really take center stage until episode uh, seven or eight of that season. So it's a show like The Wire that clearly trusts that the audience are going to stick around mm-hmm. and see how everything progresses in like a very strongly serialized format and i think that uh that that is one of the key influences of the wire really is that it really advanced the level to which a tv show could be serialized Mm -hmm. uh trusting that people will stick around from the beginning or that people will seek it out on dvd and then uh enjoy it all uh at their own pace and seeing how all the various pieces fall together instead of having each time to kind of uh, make a, make concessions to people who are new, yeah. which is how a lot of other dramas do. Like something like Law and Order, you can watch pretty much any episode of Law and Order and you'll know what's happening. Mm-hmm. But you can't say the same for something like The Wire or Boardwalk Empire or Mad Men. Yeah. You know, Mad Men's another one that's obviously progresses at a very slow and deliberate stages that it's all about um the subtlety of the and nuance of the performances so you have to pay attention to the way people react to things and each other yeah and also how they change those reactions change over time to really gain an understanding of what's thinking because no one in mad men really says what they're thinking uh except in very rare instances so are you saying that the wire has opened the door for more complex ideas to come through television or is it just um TV, um, cable networks wanting to make things that are like The Wire because it was popular. Uh, and when I say popular, I mean it was acclaimed. It wasn't particularly popular in terms of a, audience it's, figures. It's obviously had a much more fruitful life afterwards yeah. uh, at, through through box office sales, whereas bo- box set sales, whereas mm-hmm. uh, ratings-wise, I don't think it ever managed more than half a million viewers and in the entire time. piddling compared to what... Breaking Bad and, AM, and uh, Mad Men get, which or is... in comparison to... Uh, yeah, so they, they get like three million an episode. Mm. Or, or in comparison to the uh, HBO shows to which it, uh, it it kind of came up around. Like, you know, The Sopranos was obviously a, a big hit. Uh, even Deadwood, which was a ratings challenge show, uh, got more viewers mm-hmm. than, uh, than The Wire had ever managed. Um I think it's more the first that essentially the uh, the the first option of what you said, which is that the show demonstrated that there was a way of doing that style of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's a movement that has slowly been happening more and more. Certainly, uh, we keep going back to it, but the the advent of the DVD box set is something that it, it's a delivery system, but it also changed the content of these shows because suddenly it's you can own a whole season of a show 22 episodes for a very cheap price mm-hmm. whereas in the days of video you would have to buy you know eight videos to have a collection of the x-files whatever it was a big investment i remember when i watched twin peaks for the first time it was on i think 20 video cassettes jesus it's not like an episode of an episode of tape yeah well <laughs> now and now i look at my uh, my Twin Peaks box set, which is the size of one video, yeah, which is, you know, that's just how the technology has moved it forward. But uh, yes. you're right, it does definitely change how consumers consume. And as a result, I think it changed the way in which people expected television to work. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, do you ever watch uh, like catch a little bit of a police drama like Law and Order and just think this is fucking rubbish now? No, because I because there's there's a place for that. It's there's like in terms of how realistic it is. I mean, oh, in terms of how realistic it so is, that's, yeah, that never happened. No, um, less so Law and Order, more something like CSI. Oh, CS, CSI is ludicrous. Yeah, Law, Law and Order, uh, certainly like the original Law and Order, which finished a few years ago, always kind of had its foot in uh, reality, mm-hmm. whereas CSI is pretty much science fiction yeah. at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so divorced from reality, it's, it gets crazy. Yeah. Um, but you know, episodic television has its place, but it's it's very much something to be enjoyed uh, on a, you know, when you catch it on TV. I don't know if anyone would really want to own like all of Law and Order on DVD, although you can buy it on DVD if you really wanted to, um, because if you were to just watch every single episode, you'd go mad, because um, it'd just be the same characters doing the same things with slight variations every week mm. whereas something like you know the wire or Mad Men, uh there's uh, a joy in seeing the the story gradually unfold over over time and uh being rewarded for being attentive as opposed to just watching something because it happens to be on tv yeah um in terms of uh, legacy um what is where have um, the key players of the wire uh, ended up. Well, uh, David Simon's gone on to uh, create a, a mini series called Generation Kill, which, which was uh, wonderful. It was, and very much in the uh, mould of the wire. Mm-hmm. Lots of technical dialogue uh, <laughs> that was hard to uh, understand <laughs> until you'd uh, spent a bit of time with it. Um, and had Ziggy from the wire in it. Yep, uh, it did in a very much more likable role. Yep. Uh, as not a greasy-haired wanker. Well, it, it's um, it's testament to the, you know, every character is so well drawn in the wire that mm. there's no easy. I like this person. I don't like this yeah. person. And I I just remember again sat down with my uh, missus watching it and she was like, oh I love Omar. And I was like, but the guy's a sociopath. And she was like, oh. And I was like, yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? And then when Ziggy came on the scene, the second one, she was like, that guy is a massive dickhead. And I was like, <laughs> just wait until the end of the season. And then at the end, she was just like, I just want to hug him because he's, you know what I mean? Yeah. His, I mean, Ziggy's storyline in season two is, is amazing. It is. It is it, kind of the way contained. it wraps up. And it also makes for one of the, the most tragic, which is the death of his, his uncle, Frank. Wait, mm. is it his uncle? No, Ziggy is his dad. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's um, the other one's uncle, Nick. isn't he? Nick's uncle. <laughs> Um, it's because their relationships are, you know, Nick is basically more like a son. Son, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, Frank Frank dies because of the actions of Ziggy kind of like causing a stir and then people think that he, and then he gets, you know, brought in by the police and it all unfolds very tragically, uh, which is kind of an illustration again of the kind of Greek tragic thing, which mm. is that Frank ends up dead not because of any fault in himself but because of absolutely everything else around him kind of conspiring, so he has to die at that moment, which is heartbreaking. So, yes, Generation Kill is uh, wonderful to watch. And then he did uh, Treme, which is great. Seen the first season? I really, really like Treme, I do. I I felt it was a bit heavy-handed in some of the writing, Particularly um, John Goodman. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also because I mean, there's a lot of non-actors in The Wire, mm. um, but they're kind of it, there's a lot of the non-actors in The Wire are still talking about or acting in their milieu. Mm. Um, when there's a, a real thing about asking musicians to act, yeah, which is uh, fraught with danger because sometimes you get David Bowie, and sometimes you get Mick Jagger. 
And sometimes you get Elvis Costello, who's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, th- I found that hard. Yeah. Um, but th- what was good about it outweighed what was what was bad about it. Does it get uh, more consistent as the seasons it, go it, on? It does. Yeah. The um, second season aired last year. I think the third one starts. It's coming up, isn't it? Soon. Yeah. Um, it always has that great sense of of place. Like it, you get such a wonderful feel for New Orleans uh, through watching. Treme. Um, Again, they, they really don't make any concessions, and I'm no. so glad that I watched the Spike Lee documentary when the levees broke the week before I started watching Treme because it's a good it's a good primer. You know when they when they you go in they start talking about Mayor Nagin and and um, FEMA and all these things that you um, and the Ninth Wards and and so you don't know yeah. what they are. The when the levees broke is a good starter. It's a good four-hour documentary to watch before <laughs> watching Tremé. Devastating, haunting, <laughs> uh, which has got lots of crossover with the wire because uh, um, the actor whose name I've forgotten. Clark Peters. Uh, no, Wendell, Wendell Pierce, Pierce is in um, when the levees broke. Cause he's a New Orleanser. Yeah. Um, and you know his life was very much affected by. And he's he's also great in Tremé. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he's drawing on his own kind of uh, well of, of personal experiences in that role. Mm. Um, what else is Simon? Is Simon committed to doing Treme and is that it? Is he's it? committed to doing Treme for another two seasons. Right, so okay. it's going to end at the end of the fourth. Um, and that's it at the moment. I think he was rumoured to have written a, a screenplay for film based on the book Manhunt by James L. Swanson, which is about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth, which could be very good, but mm-hmm. I've not heard anything else about it. Uh, Ed Burns has obviously worked on him on both of those shows as well. Um, George Pelicanos, who was one of the key writers on, on The Wire, I think he wrote the penultimate episode of every season. Yeah, we should probably mention the writers on, on um, The Wire. They're all... Um, non-TV. non-TV writers. Yeah. I mean, you've got people like Richard Price, uh, George Pelicanos, Dennis, Dennis Lehane, all crime novelists. Then on the same token, you've got um, uh, David Simon, um, David Ra- Mills, David who... Mills, Rafael Alvarez. I think they're all journalists, aren't they? Yes. Um, uh, Mills uh, had a had pretty much the same experience as as David Simon. I think David Simon brought him on to Homicide once he was. Uh, he'd been on for a few years as a producer, mm-hmm. um, but again, yeah, he started off as a journalist uh, working in Washington, which is how he and, and Simon knew each other because they were kind of antagonistic because <laughs> right. they were working different beats in the same in these rival cities. Um, and then, but yeah, so he came from a journalistic point of view and then came into television. Ed Burns, obviously, policeman, teacher, TV writer. It's not a normal career path. It's not no, and it. it all of those people's jobs and that wealth of experience gives the show the, the, its feel, its yeah. unique kind of uh, um, uh, language and, and, and tone. Um, but, um, yeah, what did they go on to afterwards, the writers? Uh, George Pelicanos, is, uh, he worked as a writer and producer on The Pacific, the follow-up to Man's Brothers, obviously mm-hmm. writing novels uh, and things like that. I think that's pretty much Fall what... back on the, on the old day job. <laughs> I think that's what uh, pretty much what uh, Dennis Lane and Richard uh, Price did. Uh, David Mills worked on the first season of Tremaine and then uh, sadly died of a brain hemorrhage. I did not know that. On set, yeah. So that was very, that was uh, very, very uh, sad and unfortunate. Um, so yeah, so they, they've they've kind of gone out and uh, oh, Richard Price um, created his own cop show called. Uh, 
I think it's called Rookie Blue, uh, which is a, a network. I've seen a billboard for it. Which is a network uh, cop show, which doesn't have the uh, the grit that you would kind of hope for from the, one of the key figures behind the writer and one of the the key creators of sort of gritty crime fiction, which is obviously what he is. He wrote Clockers, didn't he, Richard Price, and some other things. Yeah, so he's obviously spent. Uh, he's kind of continued in that vein, though uh, not doing anything quite as good. I was saying. Oh no, sorry. His he. Uh, NYC 22 was the one that he yeah rookie did. rookie blue looks are you sure rookie blue is American it looks British I don't know why pretty sure it is anyway um but uh, I was intrigued to see I looked this up and um looked up the actors and what they've done since and I think it's testament to you know I hate saying character actor um mm. because what other kind of actor is there um um uh it's testament to these guys' skill as character actors that all of them have kind of just slipped back into doing that, which is no one's really broken out of the show and done other things, with the exception of perhaps um, Dominic West. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he's not gone from The Wire to the A-list. I mean, um, he's back in Sheffield uh, this year playing um, the Rex Harrison role in My Fair Lady on stage. Oh, cool. Um, and I did see Clark Peters and uh, Dominic West in Othello at the Sheffield Crucible which was uh, quite wonderful to see um, but none of the actors really have broken out um, and gone on to do big things I'm not going to say better things but big things no. um, is that testament to the fact that he brought on team players who um, that Simon brought in um, actors who would um, um, you know uh, would do unshowy work that would uh, be workmanlike but also excellent uh, I guess so, or maybe it's just that they've uh, perhaps all the a lot of the people involved might have been a bit more choosy afterwards, just because you've got so, some of them haven't been. No, maybe not. Uh, who would you cite in particular? Um, the guy who plays Daniels, Lance Reddick, and oh, yeah. uh, the guy who plays um, Carver, mm. uh, Seth Gilliam. Um, I mean, they're both just jobbing. TV actors, well, same with like Sonny Sonny. So, uh, Cedric Daniel, uh, that's not his real name. That's a character. Yeah. Reality uh, Lance, fiction. Lance Reddick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's very good on Fringe, which obviously is a less uh, uh, intellectually rigorous show, although still a very well written sci fi show. But mm -hmm. yeah, obviously he's not pushing it, he's not straining his, himself too much. Um, but I think, yeah, for, for some people it probably is, it's um, like Dominic West is very much kind of. Other than you know 300, mm -hmm. um, he's kind of followed a, a, a sort of more prestigious career, being in uh, uh, what was the one about Fred West? Uh, responsible adult. Something adult. Something adult. Yeah, um, he was in that. He's been in the the hour and the second season of the series of the hour, which is starting up uh, this year, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so he's very much kind of followed that route in his career uh aiden gillen uh is perfectly happy just kind of like showing up in small scale things like he was in wakewood that uh, hammer horror film from a few years ago and he was he's in game of thrones now isn't he and he's in the opening scene of the dark knight rises is he <laughs> yeah he's the cia guy that's got bane on that plane is he yeah 
Oh, it passed me by. Yeah. So did I notice him? I'm not sure. I forgot. I, I forgot the Dark Knight Rises. We did the Dark Knight Rises episode. That Dark Knight Rises episode is my only memory of the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> That's what I draw on it. I have to listen to that to remember what happened. Um, so yeah, I mean. Um, in terms of legacy, it's a it's a show that's left a legacy rather mm. than the people involved going on to do yeah other I think things. yeah I do I do think it's the the impact of the show itself as opposed to it's much the same way I think you could say that about the Sopranos really because no one in the Sopranos has gone on to like mega stardom. Meadow tried to have a pop, pop career, didn't she? And that failed. <laughs> Did she? I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, she played herself on Entourage for a while. I know that. Wow. That yeah. is that a nadir of your career if you're playing yourself on Entourage? I think uh, anyone appearing on Entourage is probably in a nadir. Yeah. Um, but like James Gandolfini's gone back to pretty much the career he had before The Sopranos, which is you know he appears on on Broadway and he appears in like small roles in 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 independent films. Um, uh, I guess uh, Edie Falco is probably the the one from that because obviously she headlines on Nurse Jackie, mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah. is itself quite a, a small show, but you know she's got a show. But I think this is what I was trying to say. I think I've been quite clumsy trying to make this point. <laughs> if you pick character actors, it's and you know actors who, um, well, basically when people we're say not usually actor, would not usually be leads. Yeah, when when people say character actor, they mean good actor. Yeah, I think that's what they're saying. The opposite is a, is someone who essentially plays themselves, like yeah. Tom Cruise. Essentially, plays himself in every film. Um, his personality is bigger than the character he's playing. Mm. You don't cast him to, you know, unless he's trying to win an award, he doesn't get cast in an interesting character role. Um, so, uh, what I'm trying to say is the, the the actors, you know, are never bothered about going on to, you know, being, uh, they just go on and carry on what they're doing. They never saw it as a, a stepping stone to superstardom. It no. was just a great show with amazing scripts that kind of gave them the opportunity of a lifetime really and that's why you know um that's why the wire is so kind of immaculately performed and Mm. and, uh um it is across the board it's very well acted show yeah and also uh in terms of uh impact it's probably uh one of the very few uh dramas to feature so many um so many black actors that was someone noted that that was one of the reasons why it failed on television because yeah, that's the, something that people say. You know, the the cast was predominantly black. It may have been Wendell Pierce who said that. I think I've heard him say it in the past. Well, yeah, that's racist. <laughs> um, I mean, he's got an excellent point. Uh, American TV is a pretty white bread industry. Yeah. There is uh, tokenism abound, but um, um, it's a every single part of the show. It doesn't matter where you mean. You'll never see a network show where um, there'll be a, a black actor playing a character in in a position of power that's above maybe kind of or, lieutenant maybe or, or something. where they're not playing um, someone quite stereotypical. I mean, one of the uh, things I remember this was definitely uh, something I saw in an interview with a Wendell Pierce mm-hmm. a while ago, where he was talking about how um, he would get scripts for films in which uh, because the character had been written as black, if ever if they were talking about their mother dying, they'd talk about mama. Right. Okay. And then he would be like, "But no, we do say mother. You know, mm. we don't say we don't all just say that." I think that that's something that would kind of creep in. Like you do the the occasional show which will have one sort of black character who's not a stereotype, but if it's like multiple of it, they start to lean quite heavily. Yeah. On uh, like something like. Um, 
happy endings has a very well written black character in in uh damon wayans jr um his character um new hill's got some uh good ones as well they're they're, they're just they're just funny characters it doesn't really matter that they're black or not mm-hmm. whereas in dramas and certainly ones if they were just about cops or drug uh, or drug dealers very soon there's a kind of a well of stereotypes they just kind of draw from whereas you can't really say that about anyone in the wire you really can't it's every character is so rich and well drawn even the kind of gangbangers who uh um you know are the kind of in any other show they would be uh snarling kind of youths who are kind of uh two-dimensional at best um and in this they're kind of living breathing people and they've got a weight of decision they have to make in everything um i mean that's summed up best by the character of Bodhi, mm. who is um um well let's just say in the first series he kills the one truly sympathetic character in the entire thing in wallace he shoots yeah. him in the face um and poor wallace yeah poor wallace and that is a despicable act but when Bodhi perishes in season four you feel absolutely awful yeah and it is a heartbreaking demise i think that's the thing that really surprised me um when rewatching the first one because like my main memory before rewatching season one was of Bodhi as this kind of like tragic figure mm-hmm. who uh has that wonderful conversation with mcnulty in which they talk about the way that the drug game isn't what it used to be yeah. um and he's kind of this guy who's got lots of uh lots of pathos to him but uh then you watch the first season and you just think oh the horrible guy what a shit <laughs> But it really does take you run run the gamut with his character. Same with like Prez in a different way. You know, Prez starts off as a as a a, a bit of a, a lummox and ends up being sort of very one of the the more rich characters. Well, before he's a lummox, he's a he's a brutalizer. He yeah. blinds that kid, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Eye, yeah. Um, hey Ed, I think it's time for a top ten. <laughs> Top ten. Um, what have we got? Top ten this this week. It's a uh, top ten moments from the wire because uh, I think if it was characters, it'd be too difficult. Uh, episodes would the be impossible. Impossible because not that there aren't ep- the episodes aren't great, but they're not kind of like stand out. It's yeah. not like you can just like look. You at wouldn't it. say pick your favorite chapter in this book, would you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's not really like that um so um yeah I'll, I'll i'll kick us off um with um my favorite moment from um season two i'll pick a, a moment which is uh has quite a bit of levity to it because i imagine this list is going to be quite depressing um but it's the moment in which um valchek uh major valchek attempts to disband the investigation into Sabotka, um, because he doesn't think it's coming. He thinks that the target has shifted from Sabotka to widespread corruption on the docks, on the waterfront. And he tries to strip the unit bare, and obviously he hasn't got any power to do that because Borel has given them permission to start the unit permanently. So um, he, the only person he can pull out of the unit is Prez, his son-in-law, and he calls Prez a shitbird and tries to get him to come out, and then Prez... Uh, punched him in the face <laughs> which is a great moment because yeah. Prez had been achieving so much yeah, having been, he was a house cat wasn't he they called him uh, because he was he had his gun taken off him in the first season yeah. um, for the, the aforementioned blinding of uh, child um, and uh, yeah he has got a, a you know an itchy trigger finger and um, it was a reminder that he hasn't changed 
under deep down, but yeah. also it was a very satisfying moment because Valchek was being a, a you know a massive prick. Yeah, and he'd obviously, even though he was the one who had brought the investigation in, he'd done it for the wrong reasons, which was a personal grudge rather than because he necessarily believed that there was something uh, wrong under uh, under the Stevedore Union. Mm-hmm. Um, what's yours first one? My first one, uh, going on from that, although in a very different direction, is uh, also from season two, and it is the the death of uh, Frank Sabotka, which we don't see, mm-hmm. but we see the build-up to it, um, and we see the kind of various forces at work that are going to lead to him dying, because he goes to meet the, the Greeks, who are the uh, people who are behind all of the illegal happenings, and he's basically going to talk to them, uh, he's decided that he's not going to talk to the police mm-hmm. uh, until he's spoken to them. But they come to believe that he is going to talk to them, and they decide uh, that the only thing they can do is is kill him. Which they actually... Because I think they, they like Sabotka, they've worked with him about, they do seem a little bit more... That when they realise that, they feel somewhat some remorse for it in like a second before agreeing that they're going to kill him. And I think it's one of the best examples of, again, going back to the Greek tragedy thing, the way in which all these forces can intersect. Mm-hmm. And someone who is... I mean, like, Francis Butker isn't innocent. He has helped uh, illegal things happen, and he is partly responsible for death of all those, all those women in the container. Mm-hmm. But he is not someone who deserves to get brutally like stabbed to death and then thrown into the into the dock yeah that's a grim end to a good man deep down yeah and he is one of the in that he is again a character who's just immensely likable he's under a lot of stress he's trying to you know win re-election and and try and ensure that things uh keep running for the union that he's kind of dedicated his life to and that's a big part of who he is and his his family history. Yeah, all, all his all his decisions are for the good of the union, yeah. whether they are good decisions, bad decisions, or criminal acts. Mm-hmm. All, they all are for the good of his union. I'm going to pick a moment from uh, season one, and I'm going to be um, blinding the obvious and pick the very, very first moment of the entire show, um, a um, scene in which you can actually um, encapsulate the entire premise of The Wire, in one five-minute segment. And the scene starts with a, a kind of a, a murder that's never really mentioned again with another a character that's never really mentioned again with McNulty sat on a step with a kind of young hood asking about a kid who's just been killed and a kid is called Snot Boogie. And they talk about how Snot Boogie got his name and he would, you know, and um, why he was killed. And he was killed over, you know, he, he um, would steal some money from a crap game. Um every week and he says you know if you did it every week why'd you let him play and he said well you had to that's america (laughs) this is america um so um i mean that's a great encapsulation of the of the entire idea of the show behind the show but also it's a really great lift from the book homicide a year on the killing streets because that is practically verbatim from that book yeah they they uh drew upon it for a number of, of things in the details of the homicide department because obviously that's one of up, up until the wire that was kind of uh simon's main kind of contribution to sort of 
American crime writing. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good primer, isn't it? For it's pretty watching good. Watching the Wire, yeah. I mean, it's so. I mean, it's an amazing book anyway, but there's a lot of detail and nuance that you will pick up from. And also, just as, as an introduction to the way in which a homicide department works. Yeah, knowing what a red ball is, knowing why they're doing them on the board, clearance rates, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, um, it goes into a lot of detail with that. Yeah. And also, the, the, the detectives in it are, you know, such great, uh, well-detailed people. Uh, and it's fun seeing how some of those relationships and conversations uh, bleed into the wire, particularly the uh, conversation that McNulty and um, and Bunk have, where Bunk thanks McNulty for being really gentle when he fucked him in the ass. Oh no, when the other way around, isn't it? McNulty thanks Bunk for being really gentle when he fucked him in the ass, yeah. which is taken word for word from that. Yeah, it's a very, very nice moment. What have you got next? Uh, my next one would be... Uh, uh, Omar's standoff with uh, brother Mosum, yeah, uh, which uh, happens in season three, I believe. It's the opening scene of the episode in which Stringer Bell dies. Yeah, because up until that point, those two characters have been against each other, particularly because Omar got shot him in yeah. the second season. He does when he's been misinformed that he is the person responsible. That brother Muzone is the person who killed Brandon. In the or was first it the season. first season then? Uh, no, in the second season, he gets told that by oh, Stringer Bell. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he's misled, and they end up, because uh, Brother Muzone is uh, someone that Stringer Bell wants out of the way, because he's... Uh, he's Avon's enforcer, isn't he? Because there's yeah. that schism that starts in season two between Barksdale and and Stringer, because the tension's always there, isn't it? That the, the Stringer's a businessman, and Avon's a gangster, yeah. and they don't see the two approaches working. No. Um. So, um. and they, you know... And they, they, they're not really compatible. Um, and eventually that partnership is going to end badly. Yes, and it certainly does. Uh, and they basically uh, confront each other on a uh, abandoned street uh, somewhere. They both got their guns trained on each other and they basically hash out the situation. They realise why they're against each other and they, they discover that they have a, a mutual enemy in Stringer Bell and they set about... Uh, ending ending his life but it's just such a that occasionally the wire will have just like a scene like that there's a where and i'll probably talk about another one in a minute um which feels like it's been plopped in for something that's a lot more stylized and a lot more usually involving omar who's a very kind of light and life character as is brother mozan mm-hmm. um but i just think it's it's just so wonderful seeing these two kind of uh very distinct and iconic characters just kind of like staring each other down and there's such a wonderful tension in the scene where you'll really until they reach an accord mm-hmm. you're not entirely sure where it's going to go yeah if uh it's going to end with one or both of them dead yeah um and yeah that that sets in motion that series of events that leads to stringer's demise which mm. is uh you know a really well done thing because in a in another show that would have been made that would have been a set piece yeah instead it's two guys and stringer says get it over with and before he can finish that sentence he's he's you know dead on the floor it's also a good illustration of um kind of a a a thing that happens a lot in the wire is a lot of the death and destruction that occurs over the course of series happens through a lack of communication it's Mm -hmm. from people misunderstanding things believing that someone's a police informant when they're not or you know uh 
or just some sort of minor misunderstanding that snowballed. And that's a really interesting example of two characters who do nothing but talk and reach an understanding and actually communicate what's happening Mm -hmm. in order to... At gunpoint. (laughs) At gunpoint, but in order to sort of further their own goals, which they achieve. Their goal is to murder someone, Mm -hmm. but... um, Well, well done to them for achieving. Well well done for breaking out of the cycle of misunderstanding. Um, (laughs) Through murder. Yeah. Using murder to resolve communication issues. (laughs) Um, my, I'm going to go for another series two moment. I alluded to it earlier. Um, Ziggy is one of my favourite characters from the whole thing. He's only really in season two. He doesn't come back, does he at all? He's only in season two. No. All right, yeah. Um, his the end to his storyline over the whole course of of the twelve episodes of season two. He is constantly overlooked, not taken seriously. But then, by the same token, he acts like a massive twat. <laughs> he kills a duck. By getting it drunk, which is, you know, that's poor form, yeah. even in Baltimore. Um, um, uh, he is um, irritating, he is irresponsible, he's hot-headed, but he gets himself in too deep. And there is a, a real tragic air. I mean, there's a tragic air about everyone in, in, in The Wire. Um, there's that, that kind of that tragedy of him, he'll never be taken seriously. And he, and he basically he says to his father afterwards that he, he's just got tired of not being taken seriously and he he the deal goes wrong with um the guy who run the fence mm. who the, the greek's fence and he ziggy takes a gun and kills uh, the fence and also shoots his teenage son yeah um basically uh, a murder and a half we'll call that <laughs> um and it's just compl- it comes completely out of the blue but then when you think about it it's been coming the whole time he's just a ticking clock uh, a time bomb that was going to do something incredibly irresponsible. When he does, you don't get the impression. You don't look at the character and, and you think, "Oh, what an idiot!" You look at him and think, "I can't believe he's done that." Yeah. I, I, I feel so attached to this this person. That I feel so sorry for him that he's done that. You understand why someone would go on a, a killing spree, basically. Um, and you know, those actions become understandable and yeah. uh, the character is sympathetic even though he is a dick yeah stylistically also that sequence is you know people often talk about the, sh- the wire isn't an, a kind of uh, a very distant and, and unshowy uh, program like mm-hmm. visually but that one's one of the few times they actually put you in ziggy's head yeah because after the shooting like the soundtrack goes down and they do a thing where they're playing two images over each other, so it looks really disorientated and blurry. And they snap out of it when the meter yeah. pings, don't they? Uh, and it's just it's it's really effective because they don't do that sort of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next one is going to be from season four, which is uh, Cutty going for a run to uh, move on up by Curtis Mayfield. Isn't that in season three? Uh, it's the election, which is season four. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, which I love a because uh, it's a great song. Great song. <laughs> It's about nine minutes if you have the instrumental break in the middle, but they yeah. they they use the radio edit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, but the main the thing I really like about it is that it's a it's a that that thing they do where they start off with a, a diegetic source, which is him listening to it on his iPhone iPod mm-hmm. as he's running. Uh, other MP3 players are available. Um, <laughs> but I, I, iPod's the best. <laughs> Clearly, really. it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, if Apple want to sponsor this podcast, why not? They're welcome. Uh, and then it cuts to showing uh, people lining up to vote in the mayoral election, which mm-hmm. uh, Tommy Carcetti ends up winning. And uh, it's just a it's a wonderful sequence because it is 
kind of the peak of the hopefulness of season uh, four, where um, everyone's kind of thinking that maybe this time uh, things will work out. You know, maybe the right guy will get into office and mm-hmm. he'll bring about all the sweeping changes that are needed to make this city uh, what it needs to be. And uh, it's one of the very rare, as I say, optimistic moments in the series, which then just leads to the, the crushing, grinding disappointment of that uh, change completely failing to occur. Yeah. Um, uh, but the but that's kind of what I love about it is there's such a wonderful contrast between those two things, and the sequence itself is just a wonderfully uh, implemented depiction of uh, of of futile hope. Yeah. Nice, futile hope. Love it. <laughs> um, I'm going to pick a season one. So I mean, I said that uh, this list would be quite grim, um, and but I'm going to pick a very funny moment. Um, there is humour in um, The Wire. Don't feel like it's a kind of real misery fest, uh, as much as it is grim. Uh, in times, there are there is the human there are um, humorous elements, but there is one bit that stands out, which is um, a gag for gag's sake, which is in season one when um, the special crimes unit are trying to get the desk through the door. <laughs> um, you have um, Herc and Carver are trying to get a desk through a door, um, and one by one, the other um, members of the team see that they're struggling and join in and try and get this desk through the door, and then at the end you realise that half of them have been pushing and the other half have been pulling, uh, have been pushing the other way. Yeah. So um, uh, you've got... Uh, it's a it's a very nice summation of of how flawed the institutions are. Yeah, um, but how also the uh, flawed that major crimes unit is because you have the yeah. people in it who are there because they believe they can achieve something, mm-hmm. and you have the people in there who are just there because it's a good way to wait out until they can get retired, including the guy who throws himself down the stairs. Yeah, <laughs> poker Mahone, aren't they? Yeah, yeah those, until those he can. Uh, so he can break his own arm and, and you know get early retirement. Um, yeah. So that's just a very nice moment that is very funny. Yeah. So what have you got? What's your next one? Uh, I've got uh, the the chess scene, uh, probably the archetypal uh, season one uh, moment, which is where uh, Bodie, Wallace, and uh, D'Angelo are sat on the couch in the centre of the projects, um, and they are. Uh, playing uh wallace and bodie are playing chess but actually they're playing checkers with chess pieces because mm-hmm. they don't know how to play chess so d'angelo sets about explaining to them how it works and he does so using the uh the language the, of the street the language of the street talking about the pawns being the soldiers saying they get out early mm. uh, the queen would be like string a bell because you can go anywhere yeah. uh, the king uh and saying that a pawn can become the queen if you really if you know gets to the other side of the board uh and it's really it's a really greatly it's really well worded scene uh really well well written and it could have been really shit that scene yeah it could, could have, have been, been very heavy-handed so. and stupid but it does a wonderful thing of illustrating kind of how even though d'angelo is uh kind of meant to be on a similar sort of level to the the guys that work for him because he's very low down in the organization mm-hmm. you can really see the difference in uh, mentality because he really understands the way in which things are going to end up for them because he has that line where he says you know the king stay the king and Bodhi's asking you know you know but if you're uh, and then he basically says unless they some clever ass pawns and yeah. it's just kind of like thinking Bodhi really doesn't understand that 
the way in which life ends up for them is they stay low level and they die. Yeah. That's how it's going to work out. Whereas D'Angelo has this clear understanding that the best you can hope for is you end up a Stringer Bell style figure who's like up there, but they can never take over the organization. Because if you're taking over the organization, you're going to be in everyone's sights. Yeah. Um, my last choice, and it's very tough, uh, and uh, honourable mentions must go to um, the um, the section in prison where D'Angelo is talking about the Great Gatsby. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, it's a great moment. Um, and also the uh, murder investigation in which uh, Bunk and McNulty spend two minutes talking using the word fuck and its derivatives. Uh, those two must get a special mention. But my all-time favourite moment of um, any episode of The Wire is the moment in season four um, where um, uh, Carver, played by Seth Gilliam, is a character who is perhaps not... If you were asked to list the characters in the Y, you probably wouldn't have him in the top ten normally. But there's a moment where he um, has tried and failed to um, get the character of Randy out of... um, the foster home the the the, the social uh, care that he's been taken into because of the police's failings with um their investigation their failings to protect randy and there is a lovely beautiful moment where carver comes out and sits in his car and we are outside the car the camera's outside the car and it's just looking in and you see the effect the emotional effect that um that uh, this has had on Carver and he basically just pounds the wheel of his car which is kind of a cinematic cliche and has been done but in that instance um, it just proves to you how much investment you have in every element of that and what that's built to you're invested so much in Carver even as a minor character Mm. a relatively minor character and so much in Randy and what's going to happen to him because we know where a life in social housing is going to lead, yeah. uh, a life in social care is going to lead, um, that that moment is so poignant, so heartbreaking, so beautiful, and that is my favourite moment of any episode of The Wire. That's pretty great. Mm. That's a great one. Uh, my honourable mentions would probably go to pretty much any line that Bunk says. Uh, my my favourite is the, the Greek one. Have you got that one in mind? Oh, which one? Where he, uh, he basically says, fucking Greeks, and then uh, when they're in season two, he, he, he says, oh, yeah, fuck the Greeks or something. And then um, McNulty says, oh, don't rag on the Greeks. They invented civilization." And then Bunch goes, yeah, ass fucking too. <laughs> <laughs> which is just a brilliant line. That one's great. My one would be just like, I'm just a humble motherfucker with a big ass dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, or when uh, he shoot when he the story about him shooting the mouse with his service weapon yeah. is great, and uh, that's another a true one from the homicide book as well. Yeah, that one's that one's pretty great. Um, I think I probably go have uh, go for uh, as one of as a favorite um, the wake of uh, of Ray played by oh, yeah. um, Robert Colesbury, Robert, Robert yeah. Colesbury, who was the producer of the show, very influential in getting the show made, um, worked on. A lot of uh, independent film. He produced After Hours and Mississippi Burning. Uh, I did not know that. He did. Uh, and he directed the last episode of season two as well. I noticed, yeah, so. that was his first uh, directing credit, and he died not long before the episode was finished because he had a uh, he had to have an open heart surgery, and he died on the table, I believe. Wow. Um, and uh, so his ca- he had a, a small character, a small role as this kind of put upon 
homicide detective who everyone just kept giving the cases to and he could never solve them. Mm-hmm. And so the third season, uh, very early on, they have a, a wake for him, which also doubles as a wake for the uh, for the, the man in which they make reference in Jay Landsman's dialogue where he talks about the Mississippi extraction and the after-hours job. Um, <laughs> I've not noticed that. I'll have to look out for that. It's a pretty. It's just. A, it's just a really uh, sweet scene, and I think it. Um, it gets to kind of the heart of the camaraderie that all the people in the the police department feel. Uh, and it's an actual thing, isn't it? Where they, the, the, for anyone who hasn't seen it, why are you listen to this podcast? But um, the the detectives wake is they mm-hmm. take the body of the actual person and yeah. lay it on the pool table, yeah, yeah, and dress it in its dress blues, and they all just get pissed and they uh, the eulogise and sing the pogues. <laughs> That's essentially what they do, and. You know they're doing it. It's got two meanings, isn't it? Because they're doing it for the character who is a very, very minor character in the in the in the whole story, but is a huge player behind the scenes yeah. in real life. Uh, and it's it's kind of an, a similar moment is the end of the first season after Greg's gets shot, mm-hmm. where everyone's in the ho- in the hospital, and um, uh, the the commissioner, not the commissioner, but you know the guy who's above. Uh, the chief the, of police guy, isn't it? Yeah, he kind of like takes McNulty aside and is still is basically dressing him down, but also kind of trying to comfort him at the same time. And I like those moments which illustrate the way that even though these people are often at odds with each other, it's Rawls who does that. Oh, Rawls, yeah, sorry, Rawls. Yeah. Um, they're still on the same side, but yeah. even if they're often against each other, and how best to do that job, and I quite like that as an illustration of kind of the the nobility of the cops in the face of kind of insurmountable odds yeah which is kind of you you get the sense throughout the wire that even though they have uh, simon has clear distrust of these institutions he has nothing but respect for the people who are forced to work within them i think uh, scenes like that which kind of cut to the basic humanity of it are, are the ones that really stick out for me so that's why uh, I really really respond to that wake so 10 great moments good show great show probably the best show ever made I'm going to say that right now it's pretty good we'll see how Breaking Bad finishes up yeah Breaking Bad is, is really the closest thing to uh, to getting anywhere near the wire I think um, but yeah um, so that was our special episode not really a special episode it's a normal episode it's a normal episode yeah but dedicated to a special show yes um, um, so yeah again if um, you haven't heard it here it uh, doesn't really mean anything um, and until then it's all in the game yo that's what I, I'm from Ipswich where are you, where are you from uh, Cambridge Cambridge These they're two very very street places aren't yep. they so me and you can really really feel the, the problems that people in Baltimore face yeah oh, absolutely yeah um so until next time it is goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me SRS coming yo <laughs> <laughs>